now I'm recording you without knowing. Oh no, wait, you do know that I'm knowing because I told you. Man, I'm I'm a bad uh, secret recorder. Terrible. I'm a terrible person. <laughs> Welcome to the Age of Cinema. I'm Jack. And I'm Andrew. And thank you for listening to us. Uh, you wagers uh i just came up with that uh today i was just kind of thinking man, i love know, it it's brilliant yeah i mean you know the, the people who listen to us they they deserve a name it's kind of like when the you know spill.com they had their spilios right and uh Mystery science theater has misties oh okay yeah yeah well there you go um so thank you for listening to us you wagers you're waging on us the wagers of cinema listening to the wages of cinema you are great. Yes. Thank you for listening to our cinematic currency as we, as uh, our value may drop, but we're still here. <laughs> I had a thought a few weeks ago. Okay. And it relates back to an episode that we just did, the one about uh, Heaven's Gate. Right. I got it right. I didn't call it Gates of Heaven. You get a cookie. Nice. Here you go. Chomp. So I was thinking about that film and... I was thinking about what I liked and what I didn't like, and you know how could I really fix it? And I was, I would think about like random scenes from the thing, and then I would also just kind of think about music from Once Upon a Time in the West. <laughs> you know what's interesting with that movie, but I didn't get to. I should have mentioned this when we were uh, talking about the movie. Uh, Steven Soderbergh, um, the director of Ocean's Eleven movies, uh, Kafka. Yeah, Kafka, which is, it's funny that that's the only movie of his I have not seen, and, and you've seen it. it's the only movie of his that I have seen. So between the two of us, we complete we... Steven Soberg's filmography. High five. It's like, I've seen like 25 of his movies, and you've seen one. And together we form a triforce of Soderbergh. Justice. <laughs> I just want a picture of Soderbergh triforce. I'm surprised you never have seen Schizopolis. That's a movie you might dig. Maybe. That's a movie that Matt told me to watch for a long time, our friend Matt Rosen. And uh, all right, but anyway, my point is he went ahead on his own and re edited his own version of Heaven's Gate. Really? Yeah. It's I he has a website and I, I forget the name of it, but if you go, do a Google search, he recut the film in his own way. Like I'm I'm trying to remember now what he he called it because it was like um it was a very special version of it oh the butcher's cut hmm. oh okay and his website is called extension 765.com um so yeah so he so he took his cut of the movie and edited it he took the 219 minute cut and took out like a hundred minutes so it's like an so it's an hour and forty eight minute long movie. Um, it's interesting because he said that he was because uh, Soderbergh said he was a big fan of it, and he but then he like he said that he uh, history has shown that on occasion a fan can become so obsessed that they turn violent toward the object of their obsession, right? Which is what happened to me during this holiday break uh, about ten years ago, and so. All right, so I know I was getting off track. Yes, but it's it. Uh, you know, I thought about it kind of the way he did, and I, I figured like, I finally figured out something. Yeah. He- Heaven's Gate has its flaws, but and you could say like this is wrong with it, or this is wrong with it. But if you come down to one concrete 
tangible thing that you could change and you could point to and say, this is a flaw. I figured out what I think, what I would change if I could change Heaven's Gate. Yeah. And it's the score. Hmm. Interesting. Now, what was the name of the guy who did the score for Heaven's Gate originally? He was the guy who like played the fiddle player in the movie. Well, when right? you say originally, you mean like the, the guy who composed the score? The film as it was just as it was his shown. David Mansfield, I believe is his David name. Mansfield. He, he does a good job. He's he, you could tell from the music in that film that he's a terrific musician, composed some really nice music for it. And yeah. it's good music. He also does something interesting that I've only seen that I've seen happen a few times here and there. I saw it in Jaws, and I saw it in uh, Once Upon a Time in America, um, which again is the right. Leone film you need to see. Um, Not the Colossus of Rhodes. You, I think we no. We you guys there? saw that without Damn me. Damn it! <laughs> well, you can watch that yourself too. I'd be curious what you think of that. Uh, but no, so in. Once Upon a Time in America, um, again, this movie jumps around in time, but there's a sequence early in the movie which shows, like, old Robert De Niro in 1968. And you hear Morricone do, like, this, you know, rendition as he would do it of The Beatles yesterday. And it's very, it's like, at first you don't know where it's coming from. It's like, wait, I recognize that. Oh! Yeah. Wow, that's fitting. Like considering like what ends up in the movie, and in Jaws, John Williams actually at one point late in the film does a version of that song that uh, Quint sings. Uh, Ooh, what to do with the old Spanish lady? Yeah. Uh, and you hear like that little rendition. So that becomes a motif. Yeah. yeah. Heaven's Gate. He does the guy. The composer uh, does a version of. Uh, yeah, that keeps coming up. Yeah. Is that? Do you think you would have changed that? Well, but here's here's the reason why I would change the score. It's good music in Heaven's Gate, but when you think about what the film is, it's supposed to be an epic mm-hmm. of the American West. <clears throat> and I really believe that John Mansfield's score... David Mansfield. David Mansfield. Let me just make sure that I'm getting I'm, it right, because if I'm not, then he'll you know come after me, I guess. On roller skates. <laughs> He'll just be following me around with a violin. <laughs> like, you know, the devil went down to Georgia and found me and did and put on some roller skates. Interesting, by the way, fact, that was his very first uh, composer credit. Cool. And he was only, like, he was young, too. He was only, like, 23 Clearly. or 24. And, and I don't mean to put him down, but the music... It doesn't give that the film the big epic scope that it needs. Like Morricone would do. Right. Or, or the other example, obviously, is um, Maurice Jar. Yeah. Who did the you know Lawrence of Arabia and right. a lot of those movies? Because if you're going to make an epic, you have to, you have to give it. You have to give it a soundtrack that it, that that even though this the the locations. And the scenes in that in Heaven's Gate are very intimate. Yes, you need to give them this sort of background of this sort of grand background with the music, so that you can see like this one scene, no matter how small it is, is part of something bigger. Yes, and you need this big theme or something and something to tie it together. And the music in Heaven Heaven's Gate does not do that. It it's, feels too small. Yes, I was about to say that exact same word. It feels a little bit more intimate. Which, yeah. which is interesting because 
um, Deer Hunter, the movie that Jamil made before, that was also an, an epic, but that was more that was more intimate. Like the score for Heaven's Gate would have been fine in that movie, and I, I forget the score for that movie, but that was again that was more of an intimate epic. That was more like here's a three hour movie, but a lot of scenes are just people in a car or um, or people in a, a room and they're crying or something like that. Hmm. Uh, Heaven's Gate, I mean, you have those gigantic battle scenes. You have the big scene with everybody roller skating. You have these giant I would, vistas I of, did like of the, towns. I do and... like the music in the roller skating scene. Yeah, I, but I'm not saying that any of that move, music is bad. It's you just can, misplaced. You can, it, it doesn't match up with the scope of the film. No. And I think in order to really make a film seem like an epic, you do have to have an epic score. Yeah. Where someone like Ennio Morricone or John Williams, who was originally supposed to do the film, would have done it more justice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, uh, and, you know, you're talking about really great composers, and I'm like, oh, and you're like, well, yeah, of course they would have made it better. But it's not just because they're great composers, it's because they trucked in a they, in a form of music score that was more fitting to what heaven's gate was trying to accomplish yeah yeah they they were like they they have a sense of how to make themes for characters themes for settings um yeah they come back to the same themes depending on uh who's who um you know like i uh and I think we've talked about that in the past about uh, the recognizable scores and all that type of thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, sometimes those themes, you know, you end up recognizing them just because they're played everywhere for years and years. But on the other hand, you could say uh, with Heaven's Gate, maybe the problem is, you know, who who knows how to hum the theme to Heaven's Gate? I know how to hum the, the Blue Danube. I know how to hum the Blue Danube. Well, yeah, but that's because it was from two thousand one. Yeah, that that movie knew how to make use epic music. Yeah, and and there 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 are a lot of there are some grand shots in two thousand two. Two thousand two. Two thousand two. The long awaited sequel to two thousand one that nobody asked for. Oh God! <laughs> uh, I I need a nap. Anyway, I feel like two thousand. Well, like, two thousand one is also notable for its lack of score in a lot of in a lot of places. So two thousand one well, is kind of in a, a score all its well, own. Yeah, I that's, never... that's an anomaly because you have parts where the score is instantly recognizable because of the "Thus Spoke Zarathustra," and then the "Blue Danube." But then you have that I'm, I'm mispronouncing this guy's name, but Georgi Legetti. Is that you pronounce? That's the name? thing where Dave Bowman goes into the monolith. Yeah, the music goes, piece, which I like to call. <laughs> it sounds like you're crapping your pants. Right. The choir, um. which is probably <laughs> what Dave Bowman was doing at that point in time in the film. Well, it's like they have that long Jupiter sequence, yeah. which is so great, and you know has inspired so many, you so know, many uh, parodies, so many bong-filled nights. I'm pretty sure that you could rate the cultural impact of a movie by how many parodies that that movie has in cartoons yeah i mean i i saw the two i saw the 2001 parody of the simpsons long before i you know saw that i probably right. saw a 2001 parody and a lot there of are cartoons being produced right now that still reference 2001 a space odyssey yeah 
Um, and why not? Like, I, when you see that, like, you might be a kid and like, oh, there's a movie called 2001. And then you get to this long stretch at the end where it's just colors and weird music. And then when that you sticks back, in your and brain. And then when you cut back to David Bowman, he's just like He feels shaking. the way you did. <laughs> <laughs> like, his eyes are rolled up in the back of his head and, yeah. And, you know, Freakazoid par- parodied that. Oh, did you remember the? You remember Freakazoid? I don't remember that episode. <laughs> I won't explain it now. All right, all right. But the point Heaven's is, Heaven's Gate, Gate, so the music was something could, that bothered Could have me. used a more epic score. I got you. Um, now, uh, something else that I guess needs to be brought up, or it's something that you wanted to talk about a little bit more again, because uh, I guess, God forbid, we didn't get into it enough in the original review. Uh, if it's worth discussing, it's worth over-discussing, Jack. I suppose. I mean, I guess I didn't give as much thought because I think I might have liked the movie a little bit more than you and Matt. Um, but, but, of course, what Andrew's talking about is Doctor Strange. Uh, but more importantly is this idea of originality in Marvel movies. I th- we or talked formula. A, we talked a lot about the Marvel formula in uh, in our Doctor Strange review. And you know whether you, whether it's a good formula or not is debatable. Whether or not Marvel has been using it over and over again, let's that's think beyond about, question. Well, let's think about how many times that this kind of formula is now has happened. Well, I mean, well, so let, let's pin down what it is. It's like you start with a main character who is usually our superhero to be, someone like Tony Stark, and it's like this character is a jerk. Something will happen to that character to bring them low. And then they're going to build themselves back up again and become the hero that we know. And then they're going to fight the big threat that is something of their doing or going to, or, or has another thing is, is that it's like, there's a villain in that, in this movie who has control of a power, which they are not be able to able to be trusted with. Like in Iron Man, it's Obadiah Stane. He gets access to the Iron Man technology, and he's going to ruin the world basically with it. Or like, uh, do you think it goes back to Thor too? Thor also, because you know Thor starts off kind of as a jerk. He gets his power taken from him, and he has to earn it back. But also, he has to fight against Loki, who's getting, who's basically trying to misuse his power to destroy yeah. an entire you know, world. By of this people. point, I've almost forgotten what Loki's. What what Loki's plan was in Thor? Like I know he was going. Against it was the... convoluted. Yeah, but it was basically I only saw Thor the once. But it was theater. basically destroy all the frost giants. <laughs> That's why I forgot. I remember there was a rainbow bridge, and that was involved in the story. Yeah, um, basically. And there was a lot of time on Earth. Um, the, now, the now, other one I can think of really is Ant Man. With Ant, see with Ant Man, what I. Was Scott Lang a jerk, though? I think I not, but like... I think he's less jerky because he's played by Paul Rudd. <clears throat> so he makes him a little <laughs> bit more likable. But he's certainly this character who's trying to earn redemption, and he's up against this other villain who is who's trying to use the same technology he has to basically destabilize the world. Well, you, that, in that case, though, you also have the factor of Hank Pym, who, in yeah. a way, he's almost like an, he's kind of an asshole. In a way, now kind that, of, well, but but that's not. But he is kind of a side character in that film. I mean, mainly yeah. when we talk about like the hero's arc through many Marvel origin stories, yeah. it's like man 
man has this the main character has this sort of is is down in the dumps and he has to get back he has to become the he has to become a hero and yeah. and usually it's fighting against a villain who is trying to misuse technology or power yeah. i mean, and doctor strange seemed to use that same formula yeah so the he, only films i think that don't do that though are the team up movies no or? captain america doesn't do that well, Captain America is a much, is a different character. I mean, he yes. he has a different arc because he's you know Steve Rogers, who's you know a puny guy who gets powers, and then he's thrust into this other Red Skull story that's not very. Yeah, interesting. he's pretty much awesome all the way through, as a, as a, a little, person. And in a way, to me, it's funny because even though there is this formula that you're talking about, I find the Cap Captain America First Avenger to be one of the more uninteresting movies to me aside from setting him up in the beginning and that little like five to ten minute section where it shows the government like the the kind of propagandization of captain america <laughs> yeah. in the 40s that was great but then when you actually get into the story with the red skull it's not bad but it's very ho-hum yeah it... now it's not that necessarily the formula would have helped it because it was a period movie right but I don't know what you could have done with that with that story. Well, I think it's actually a good thing. It's actually sort of made me reassess my opinion of Captain America. I, I still have problems with Captain America: The First Avenger. It's one of the Marvel movies I do not own. Yeah. Uh, because and even though I love Captain America, Captain America is my favorite superhero of all time. Really? Yes. I still do not own his first movie. <laughs> But the the other film that doesn't also kind of escapes or stays away from the Marvel formula is the one that came right after Iron Man, the uh, Incredible Hulk. We well, don't the even... weird. Well, that's a weird movie because it it's kind of an origin movie, but at the same time, I don't think I don't know if Marvel maybe they had some kind of idea of making a universe. I mean, they had. Iron Man, and they introduced Nick Fury at the end of that, and then uh, at the end of in the at the very end of Incredible Hulk, Tony Stark shows up. Right. But you know there was another Hulk movie before that, and I almost feel like the the Incredible Hulk is an origin movie and a sequel at the same time. Yeah, in a weird way, but it doesn't go. Th it doesn't have an entire act dedicated. Again, dedicated to how bruce banner became the hulk at the beginning of that film bruce banner is the hulk yeah now that's it now the hulk has its that's own, our starting now, the incredible point. hulk has some has, has some of its own issues but what we don't have to get into that here um now again when i talked about dr strange i it in terms of using that formula iron man is still the best one in part in large part because it's the first one but also because of a lot of it to me comes down to how it goes about it. The old Roger Ebert thing. It's not how a story is told, it's how it's about it. And I don't, is that the way that he said it? It's something like that. I don't know. You talked to him, apparently. I, no, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> uh, but he... Um, no, but in both Iron Man and Doctor Strange, the lead actors, to me, bring something to it that okay, I can recognize that there's this thing where the characters have to go through this struggle, but they're really selling me on it. Hmm. Thor and Ant-Man, they did it in kind of different ways. Again, uh, and I guess in a way, Thor might be the weakest one just because that it kind of took a little bit of the 
conceit of Masters of the Universe. <laughs> I, I've actually never seen it, but I know what it's about. And it's like, you have He-Man. Right. And instead of having Played He-Man. by. D- Dolph Lundgren. Dolph Lundgren, yeah. Dolph Lundgren with Frank Langella as Skeletor. He needs a house, I guess. Uh, yeah. But anyway, but the, like the whole thing in that movie is you set up this whole world of he-man but then you take him out of that and put him on earth right and uh i remember once hearing some interview like not interview, i remember hearing a podcast with some guy who actually was like a big he-man fan in the 80s and he was like man that movie is so disappointing because it's like you set up this whole crazy universe with he-man out in outer space with all these weird characters and then you just send him off to earth it does save a lot of money per- yeah it probably <laughs> does i mean you could say that maybe Doctor Strange does that in terms of like, well, we have a lot of these crazy psychedelic sequences, but then we also have a lot of scenes of him just like in a dojo. Yeah, I, I, I don't mind that. It's just that you know we have this story structure which we've seen. I mean, even going by a conservative estimate, three times before. Do you think that is it's a movie problem, or does it also maybe go back to some of the comics? Like no, maybe some I, of these origins. I think the problem is the skill of the writers and the filmmakers. Hmm. Because let's think about what the best Marvel movies are right now. Yeah, Iron you, Man. You, you, you can you can shuffle them up, but you know your shortlist could be the first Iron Man, Avengers, Captain America: Winter Soldier, probably Civil War, unless you have problems with it. But I mean, think of those no, three. When, when, no, Civil War for sure. And, yeah, and, and maybe I mean, Guardians. And hmm. um, uh, oh, Guardians. Maybe maybe on the short list, right at the bottom. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I'll give you that one. I mean, because Guardians of the Galaxy was pretty good. Uh, that was that th- that really did a different thing. I think that's why there are a number of people I know who I don't know them personally, but just people I've seen online who put that as their favorite. Because that is a very different movie. That's an origin movie that involves an ensemble. True. And that is actually something different. Right. They took a chance on that. Part of the problem is also the idea of the origin story. That origin stories themselves are kind of weak when you compare them to, like, say, something that comes after. Like, Mm. I think they say basically that when you talk about superhero movies... When you com- uh, the second film, which usually comes out the or- yeah. origin strong- story, is usually stronger than the origin film. Part of the problem too, though, might be again it could part of it might be that the studio Disney isn't challenging themselves. Marvel Disney, whatever you call them, Marvel Studios, owned by Disney, they're not really challenging themselves enough in this, and yet maybe their thought is, will we, will the modern average moviegoer you know, will they be bothered if we really do something very different? Let's keep it a little bit safe and then put in all this other stuff, like the actors and the kind of filmmaking style to make it interesting. Because yeah. that could be it. It's it's like, uh, you know, when you have a musician that takes uh, a song and then does their own riff on it, like, I know, John Coltrane's version of uh, My Favorite Things, uh, which is just like, not at all like the Sound of Music version, right? Or like the, uh, or like the Platters version of White Christmas. Mm. I mean, I want to see I, same song, I very see, different. Yeah, I want to see Doctor Strange again at some point, just so I can see if my original assessment 
Because, you know, sometimes when we see these movies, it's right after we've seen them. When, yeah, when we record. And, yeah, when we record. And maybe the movie hasn't settled enough for me. I still like Doctor Strange a lot, but I am start, but I do think um, I could see some of the criticisms you and our guest star Matt talked about a little bit. Yeah. Um, I, but, but part of the problem is you have so many different movies which are just, we have to introduce these characters, we have to show their origins. And that's okay, but I do believe another thing. Another thing I mentioned in the review is I don't think you need to have so many origin oh, stories. I mean, else? there's nothing oh, incredibly complicated about Doctor Strange. Yeah, uh, and there are probably a lot of other Marvel properties where they could just say, "This is what this character does. This is how he does it." But you, Go. but now, do you think though that they needed to explain like all that mystic arts magic? Uh, stuff though no. like the average moviegoer though that's a little bit heady but what but what is there to explain it's magic mm. magic by its by its uh, by its very nature is inexplicable mm. i mean how can i explain magic to you to be like oh that makes sense mm. well again i was i the, the disagreement i had i had with you guys was i actually kind of liked the first act of of dr strange even though yeah is there a little bit of that formula yeah, a little bit, but um, what an interesting part of it for me is Benedict Cumberbatch and Steve Strange. Unlike a Tony Stark, like Tony Stark is kind of he he's kind of an asshole through most of that movie of yeah. Iron Man. I mean, but, but Stephen Strange, he's an asshole at first, but then that accident really humbles him. Right, and I think I felt that a little bit more in his performance. Um, Maybe eventually by the end, like when he confronts uh, Dormurmur, whatever his name is. Dormammu. Dorma whatever his name is. Dormurmur. Oh, that's what I'm going to call him. Dormurmur. Um, sorry. I, I apologize to any hardcore Strange fans listening. Then he gets a little bit into his jerkiness back, just in like, I'm going to keep bargaining with you until I break you. Right. I, I, until I break you with my annoyingness. Um. But I feel like I feel like that humbling that where he suddenly realized like he's kind of broken down made him a little bit interesting. Even though he's still a kind of a jerk to people, yeah, I mean, it, it's, enough... it's a different way of doing it than what I saw with Tony Stark. There are enough differences. I mean, you never see Tony Stark desperate the way you see Stephen Strange get desperate in that film. No, uh, and that's interesting, and I like those subtle differences. It's just we keep saying seeing the same plot structure over and over again. Hopefully, that's hopefully this might be the last one. I mean, we're now in the phase three or whatever this you is have now. To do, Marvel, you have to do Captain Marvel though. Hmm. Yeah, that is coming. I'm man, Brie Larson. That'll be fun. I like my. I like me some Brie Larson. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, interestingly with Doctor Strange, the other thing I didn't realize until I was reminded of it, it also takes a bit from Batman Begins. How? Well, a guy who's kind of damaged goes off into, like, you know, into, like, a uh, Asian terrain and learns, like, how to do, like, a very specific, <laughs> obscure type of fighting. Um, like... <laughs> You could like say like Liam Neeson is a bit like uh, Tilda Swinton, mm. uh, the mass, the ancient one. You have a point there. I mean, it's a different conceit because eventually he finds out. Uh, no, we're training you because we gotta destroy Gotham, and he's like, no. Um, 
obviously when it comes to origin stories I, it's like batman begins more but uh i mean it's always a question though like what's the alternative i mean you could say that maybe man of steel tried to do something different as an origin story well but then that had its if, own issues if we start talking about man of steel now uh, i think we're gonna get we're gonna stink into a maybe the way to do it is it's well it's, no it's, I, it's, the it's thing tough is, because i think what the studio said was okay we're doing a Doctor Strange movie. Nobody knows who Doctor Strange is. I mean, maybe you know, comic book people do. But, again, we're talking about the widest possible audience here. $200 million budget or more or less. Uh, hope, hopefully it was less. Um, when they put that kind of money into a movie that's going to play in all these different foreign countries and they want to do it as well as possible they might you know the the tendency might be to make it a little bit more into the formula i'm not saying that's right i'm just trying to think that that might be why they're keeping it to to that kind of tenor i think just my my basic problem is is that the structure looks the same mm. it's a somewhat unwieldy structure in terms of story unwieldy. and you could trim it a bit you could rearrange it a little. Mm. You could still hit those same plot points, but you could do it in a much more elegant way. And I feel like Marvel isn't doing that because they're more interested in having a tried and true method, which mm. works for them. I mean, the the one upside though is again this we're seeing the formula now, but th when I mentioned that we're now into Phase Three, with the exception of Captain Marvel, we're now at the point where we are at the full ensemble level. And Civil War was a good sign to me of, of, like, let's take some chances. We don't need to do a Black Panther movie first. Right. We can put Black Panther and, and Spider-Man into the story. You don't have to do a Spider-Man reboot again. Well, well, they are doing that. <laughs> but when they get to that, they don't need to do the origin. Yeah. So that, at least they're, maybe now they're learning a little bit from what they've them before because I mean, now like it, now like when we get a black panther movie we already know who he is let's just have a black panther adventure in africa right okay. or or spider-man homecoming so maybe this could be if not the last one of the last times this formula sh shows itself for a while yeah. um <laughs> in any event we're doing way making way better decisions than dc is making oh god <laughs> Hey, let's hey. introduce all these characters through 20 minutes of exposition that feels really like, let's just add some pop songs because that's what Guardians of the Galaxy did. Let's tell, Suicide Squad. Let's tell the story of how Batman became Batman for the third time. Let's add an entire hour to Superman's origin story. <laughs> If there is a, if there are any characters in this modern world who do not need another origin story, no, it's no. Batman and Superman. Yeah, but let's get two hours of it. Yeah, I all mean, right. at this point, and also Spider Man too. But well, they didn't. Luckily, like I said, in so now that we've had, you know, five solo Spider Man movies, the studio at least is thinking, okay, maybe now we don't have to do. <laughs> Uncle Ben again. Yeah. Because you know someday we're going to get Uncle Ben again. And uh, do I have to see it again? With great power comes great... <laughs> you know how they'll change it up this time? Like, instead of it... Before he would say... He, he said the line before he died. But this time he'll say it mid-sentence. 
great power comes great rare. What is that? With great power comes great rare. <laughs> My Python stuff. Yeah. All right. So um, let's get on to some other things. Sweet. Maybe. Because uh, I saw some movies I'd like to talk about briefly. I saw a movie I would like to talk about. All right. May I go first, though? No. No? Okay, go ahead. All right. Um, You've convinced me. All right. Um, I know. I just, uh, since we last recorded, I did I talk about The Exorcist 2? The no. Heretic? Oh, boy, this movie. I picked this as my You watched Halloween this because movie. we were just talking about it. Were or, we? Didn't you? Did we? Yeah. Huh? What? On the way back from seeing Doctor Strange. No, I watched this before that, though. Oh, I watched this okay. on Halloween night. Um, and uh, it is a total mess and truly unnecessary. Like, sometimes a movie existing, like, I, I, might, I actually talked about this kind of briefly in my uh, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me tank episode. You know, sometimes when a movie kind of feels unnecessary, that kind of impacts your enjoyment of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, ultimately, with Firewalk With Me, I ended up liking it more as I watched it. But with this, I just watching this movie, it it's the like a it's <clears throat> probably the grandfather of totally useless and unnecessary sequels that exist because we have this name, and so. We don't know how to continue this story, really, but we're going to try our best. Yeah. So, in this movie, we couldn't get Ellen Burstyn, so she'll just be away doing something. And But we do have Linda Blair, so we'll make this movie about her. And even though her character at the end of The Exorcist, for those who recall, you know this the, 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 the demon leaves her, she doesn't remember anything that happened. The movie will be about her doing this weird mind melding thing like using this like machine which i i don't even know how to call it but it like connects her mind with like this priest played by richard burton right who looks drunk off his ass like he's doing everything he can to just stand still and not slur his lines like he almost looks terrified to be on screen <laughs> Um, now, but there are things to recommend about it just because a, it is so weird that it's sometimes just so amusing. Uh, it's like, you'd think I'm exorcist movie. Okay. I should know what I'm getting a demon girl possessed. No, this movie involves like locusts in Africa and James Earl Jones, like, like doing leopard sounds. And I saw a part of exorcist two on television yeah. once. Mm-hmm. And I felt like they were looking for something. Yeah. And they were like trying to communicate with the demon, but I'm like, but I kept thinking like, why? Yeah. They're they're what, trying like well well, this... well the conceit of the movie is supposed to be Richard Burton's this like father who gets told by the church, all right, you're gonna investigate Max von Sydow's death, uh, the character from the first Exorcist, Father Marin. Yeah. And but his investigation goes nowhere, <laughs> and. But he keeps trying to find things that just lead him on really convoluted quests in Africa. And, like, then Linda Blair gets kind of messed up from it, even though she shouldn't. And now, the, but, the, but the thing is, it's directed by John Borman, who uh, we've talked about good before. Good old Johnny Borman. Good old Johnny Borman from uh, Zardoz, Zardoz and Excalibur. And... This guy had a really keen visual sense. I will say that. Like, 
This is the only movie I can think of where you will get a point of view shot of a locust flying in the air. And Ennio Morricone's score is almost so pretty, even though it's out of place, that you almost want to like it more. <laughs> Cause, and, he, and he uses the same theme over and over again, which sounds like a, a spaghetti western theme. Yeah. In The Exorcist 2. So it's so weird, but it sure does look pretty. So if you ever decide to watch it, it's a bad movie that is, like, weirdly watchable. Right. So it made for an interesting... Like does. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess if I had to pick, I'd probably say Exorcist 2 is better. But it's not saying much. <laughs> the 70s weren't too kind to John Bloom. I'm just saying that. Except for Deliverance. Right. But, all right, go and talk about your movie. Uh, I watched House. Uh, how, like, you mean House? Ooh, good. I just watched it last night. Hmm. And I've been meaning to for a few weeks. And it's, it's Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of a cop-out. but No, I, no, 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 no. It, But it is so weirdly Japanese. Like, it's, it, it's, you could not make that move... A person in America wouldn't have made that movie. There's something you're not a you're not an anime fan. I mean, not not that I'm not, that I'm not a fan. You've I just seen... don't watch. I don't. I don't like watch it enough that I I'm not interested in it in the sense of I'm gonna go outside of a lot of the popular things. Okay, uh, that's fair enough. Uh, I've I've seen my share of anime. Okay, but I could identify the very anime things that were in this film. It, I it's got a lot of the sort of Japanese Japanese tropes that you see in a lot of uh, in a lot of anime series, like the going on summer vacation with your classmates, or hmm. the school, or the one athletic girl who's into martial arts, and yeah. the, the the girl who just likes cleaning everything. I remember there are so many weird things about that movie. Uh, I remember a scene involving a piano. Right, and that's and the thing that I feel about the movie is that at its heart, it's a very average script, mm. done in the most visual, visually unique way possible. Yes, I mean cheap as hell, but still <laughs> ingenious. Oh yeah. oh yeah, I mean you very would cheap. never point at something in house two and say, "Ha, look at that cheap piano effect," and you you just be like. What's happening? No, no, no. They, 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 what that movie does is they push their budget to the limit and they get a lot of money out of uh, their effects and also just the fact that this director is so off the wall and so creative with how he's trying to manipulate like space, like the space in, um, in rooms and how the camera moves and how the most random things happen. Um, I remember actually went to, well, I went to go see this movie. <clears throat> they had like this weird, the special little program right before they showed the movie that in the seventies, this director made a bunch of commercials with Charles Bronson huh. for this product called Mandem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a clone, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, I've seen a Mandem commercial. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what happened, like, how I came across it, but, yeah, it was... And a... it had, like, this theme song, like, Off world, like the lovers with Mandem. And at the end, you hear Charles Bronson go, Mmm, Mandem. Delicious. And they were... 
they hit the spot. Like as far as is house is I mean is house who like a masterpiece? No, but it's 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 visually out there in the way that maybe it's closer to say like a Jodorowsky might be. Only it's not trying to be as deep. It's certainly not trying to be deep, but I mean, well, I would never say to somebody, this is a movie you have to see. I I would say that you could see this movie and you will never forget it. I would say that if you are into cult cinema, you should see it. Or especially, or if, especially if you want to really look into the history of Japanese cinema, that is a must see. Like if if you're just an average moviegoer, you're going to see that and just be confused like I feel like the maybe a closer example would be some of the movies I've seen from Takashi Miike. Hmm. He's one of my he's one of my favorite wild men directors, uh, who sometimes has a little bit of that anime style that you're talking about. Uh, which is funny that you're mentioning like characters going on a summer vacation because I've seen even though I haven't seen as many anime movies or shows as you have, I have seen a couple of stories that involve that type of premise. Yeah. Where I mean, characters go like, away, because they go away on summer vacation, they're leaving their humdrum existence, and that's part of the framing, is that we're going to find something really new and different. Yeah, it's kind of like the horror film trope of, oh, we're going on spring break, and we're, we're gonna... going in the cab in the woods. Yeah, it's like, oh, we're off from school, we're going to go drink, and there's like a separate thing in Japanese films, like, we're going on summer vacation, and it's not at all unusual that we go with our classmates and a teacher, perhaps. <laughs> you know, that's just the way it is. Yeah, there are a lot of just kaleidoscopic images, I remember, in that in Haosu, too. I just like the disembodied body parts. Yes. They're clearly done with by painting an actor green yeah. on certain parts. And you know, it's got that it's got a sort of visual charm that I just won't forget. Yeah. Likewise. Um so to talk about some other things I've seen, uh, speaking of horror, would you call House to a horror movie? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's not I don't know if it's scary so much as just kind of delightfully the story bizarre. Is me- the the story is clearly meant to engage you yeah. on a on a sort of horror level. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I watched a movie, Ouija, Origin of Evil. Right. Actually, I'll talk about two horror movies, because one I saw, which I thought was okay, and one I thought was absolutely horrible. Um, one is called Ouija, Origin of Evil, which was okay, but it, it kind of disappointed me in the sense that it came from a director I really liked, because I think I've talked on the show about these movies, uh, Oculus yes. and uh, Absentia. And the guy that made these movies, also this movie Hush, this guy, director made too, this guy Mike Flanagan, who is becoming one of my favorite horror movie directors, uh, working a day. It this movie Ouija, it's out. It might still be in theaters if you're listening to this. If not, well, you're lost. Check it out on video in a few months. Um, it's a real. It's a movie that's set in like the late '60s, and the director is so into the period that he's doing. You know, he does the thing that. You, we sometimes see where he does the he gets the old school studio logo yeah so he does that but not only that he went out of his way to put the little cigarette burns in this movie huh. which <laughs> again for those of you who don't know out there film prints don't really exist anymore for new movies so when you go to see this movie it's a digital print you know it's it's like it's what it is but he put like the cigarette burns as if the reel is going to change. I kind of enjoyed that attention to detail, even though it's, 
it's only there for people who are really looking for Did it. Did he splice in a few frames of porn? No, he didn't go the full Tyler Durden route, oh, unfortunately. Too bad. No, but it, it was like, all right, you're not going full grindhouse here, but I'm kind of enjoying that, that you're trying a little bit. Um, the thing about this movie, though, is that it it's terrific on character, but it's weak on horror. Like, when it's set, it's showing, like, this little family, and it involves, like, this woman who does, like, these bogus, uh, uh, I'm gonna read your, what's going on in your life type of thing, uh, stranger. Psychic. Yeah, psychic. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Um, you read my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, then it's like she's a mind reader, and her, like, her daughter gets the Ouija game, which I guess was new at the time. And it starts to make everything in the house and the characters kind of crazy. Um, but when it gets into horror stuff, it's just relying on tropes that I thought like this director was going to be better at. Or, and he even rips himself off near the end from Oculus. So, in a way, if it had been just any other director, I'd be like, eh, it wasn't bad. He kind of kind of let me down. So, if you're really into horror, go check it out. But it's not a must-see. The movie I do want to mention that is absolutely dog shit is <laughs> Shut In. Have you heard of this movie? No. You're lucky. Well, this is a new release. It didn't get much press, even though I'm sure the trailer is played here or there. Um, it represents the worst that the horror slasher stalker thriller genres have to offer. Ooh. It's like, it's lame. It is so lame in like all the ways that are too common in screenwriting. So it's like, it's got a hackneyed story for the first two thirds and it's like so dull, but then like for the last third, when it finally kicks into it's a big reveal, it's atrocious. It, it tries to do the, the shining. The boy lived in the walls all along. Well, no, no, but that's the thing. <laughs> so this movie, okay. So just to give a quick rundown, like this kid is a, like this kid is, it got expelled from school and so his father is sending him away to some other school they're in the car and the kid is so pissed he gets his dad to drive into like the oncoming lane where there happens to be a truck and cut ahead right at that moment to six months later and you had to believe that well the father's dead but now the son has become like a vegetable like he's in like a lobotomized state and like the mother has to take care of him the mother's naomi watts and they're in like this house in maine you know surrounded by snow and and then, like, there's this other character, the little boy from the movie Room, Jacob Tremblay, and you're led to think that, okay, he's this disturbed deaf kid who appears to her in the middle of the night. Is he a ghost? We don't know. Is she starting to see things? And then it reveals what is really going on with the sun. And I wish I could have gotten excited about how stupid this twist was, <laughs> but it's the kind of thing where I watched it and thought, no, no, this is just terrible all around. Yeah. You've done nothing with this movie. Nothing. It's also very safe. Like, they could have gone much more exploitation about it. Like, the way that this story ends up. But they don't even go there. It's a very tame PG-13. But most of all, what pisses me off is that it becomes an homage to The Shining. Where it had no reason to do this. Except, <laughs> clearly, the filmmakers love Stephen King. Yeah. Uh, and The Shining. Why else would you set a film in Maine? Yeah, why else would you set it in Maine and, you know, and, all, and then, like, just every single beat, so many beats blatantly ripped off. 
I, I felt like I wanted to punch this movie right in the face by the end of it. It, I, I left almost like angry. I was like shaking. Wow. Um, it got my mind off of uh, current events, so that was good. But um, it's like the kind of movie that even features like Naomi Watts is naked at one point, but it's as like Jerry Seinfeld might say, "bad naked." Uh. You know, when you're hunched over a toilet and throwing up. Um, like, and I thought of the boy, which is what you were just mentioning up that like this character is living in the walls and then the big twist of the boy, I'm going to talk about now. Did I ever tell you about the boy? Oh yeah. Yeah. The boy has the stupidest plot twist of maybe any movie I've ever seen. I would much rather watch the boy again because wow. at least that seeing the boy and what happens in that movie, at least there, I, I suddenly got reengaged with the movie. Yeah. Shut in doesn't do that. Shut the in ridiculousness just jarred you back into caring. Shut in made me suddenly like, ooh, wow. So you went there, movie. Yeah. Be happy, with stupid life. with yourself. You go with that decision. <laughs> I don't like it, but I'm glad you did something different. Live it up. Yeah. Shut in though is terrible, and um. Something interesting that I discovered is that the writer of this movie, it's her first screenwriting credit, and her next movies are going to be, she's part of like the Transformers franchise going forward, including a solo Ooh. Bumblebee movie. You have that to look forward to, Andrew, a solo Bumblebee movie. Well, I have, ever since I watched the first three, I have sworn off the Transformers franchise. <laughs> You're you finally took a stand. You're not seeing the fourth one. Right? Well, I mean, I I didn't have much invest into it. I kind of watched the the first three films as a kind of yeah. experiment and a sort of justification for myself because I wanted to talk about them with some sort of sort of authority and explain yeah. why they're bad. Now I'm not interested in talking about how bad the Transformers films are. Yeah, I'd um, rather talk about the Marvel formula mm. and, and Kevin's Gate. Yeah. Now, just to talk about a couple more movies, um, I uh, still catching up a little bit on my Godzilla. Not as much as I was last time. But, oh, good. Uh, I watched a couple more. Um, I watched. Uh, I finally got into '80s Godzilla and good. watched Godzilla 1985, aka the Return of Godzilla, aka yeah. just Gojira. The Return of Raymond Burr as well. Well, I didn't watch that version. Oh, I watched bad. the I watched the Japanese one because I had heard that was better because i heard the so you've seen the the raymond burr sequel actually i haven't oh you haven't seen this one no oh it was it was a mixed bag for me that i want to say i lean more to towards positive it's it's it was actually it's pretty sophisticated for its time you know mid 80s because like it um like at certain moments it might seem a little dated but i was riveted every moment godzilla was on screen hmm it has some of the best Godzilla effects I've seen. Hmm. And I, I know that sounds like a weird thing to say, but I mean, it. this was meant by Toho to be their, I guess after 10 years, they decided to kind of reboot the, the series. Yeah, I mean, the, the terror of Mechagodzilla was sort of, was a break for them. Yeah. And they, that they, was their last film before 19, Godzilla 1930. 85. The 19th Godzilla, Godzilla 1935. 1935. Godzilla 1935. Godzilla fighting the Anola Gay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Godzilla versus Charles Lindbergh. <laughs> now that I would pay money to see. You just see, like, Charles Lindbergh, he's trying to keep his eyes open after flying over the Atlantic, and Godzilla's just there, like, swatting at him. Um, no, but this movie, it's like he's... Godzilla, like, you have sequences he's stomping all over a nuclear facility, and he's all over Tokyo. And how they do it, like, how they use... Whatever money they spent is up there on the screen. Like, even the film stock makes it work to be terrifying. Like, it... Godzilla, you know, because this was like the return of bad Godzilla. He's no longer like dancing or helping out his son or... Or fighting his robot alter ego. Yeah, he's no longer having to uh, stand around while Japanese characters sing to a like monkey god thing. Uh, we got time for that. No, there's no Caesar song in this. Um, now the problem though is that as mu- as great as the Godzilla parts are, it it also focuses on like these two storylines with humans, and at first like one of them might is a little compelling and emotional with like these regular civilian characters, but then like there's a storyline with the government, and dull is like too nice a word. It's like, <laughs> it's, I mean I don't know about the Raymond Burr era- edit what that did to the story. I doubt but, that it did much. But it's like the... You have a scene in this movie that feels like it lasts a half hour, even though it's ten minutes, where a prime minister is dealing with like a conflict between the U.S. and the Soviets. And it's so dated. They've, they've learned... So dated. They've learned how to distort time. <laughs> like, it involves also like a bit of war game stuff, because like... They're supposed to be like this missile from outer space because they're like, well, we gotta fight Godzilla with nuclear power. I almost feel like whoever made Shin Godzilla, those directors, saw Godzilla nineteen eighty five, yeah, and that was in part what they were satirizing, like some of the stuff in this movie. Like you even get in this movie the thing where they introduce certain characters with like their title right. on screen. <laughs> Uh, so if you ever watch it, I would recommend it to you just because I know how much you like Godzilla and for those Godzilla effects, those parts are great. Like, it's not like, it's like, there's no real middle ground with this movie. There are either parts that are really amazing or parts that really suck. Yeah. So you have to kind of take them both. Um, but the other movie I watched was not, not quite to that extent. Um, I watched Godzilla versus the sea monster. Ah, that's an old one. one. No. Wow. Mystery Science Theater did that one. Yeah, I read about that, and I, I mean, I didn't just—I didn't hate this movie. I mean, it—it's uh, different in that it's not as high stakes as the other movies. Like yeah. normally, you have Godzilla and the monsters fighting in a city environment. Here, they're on an island. Uh, like characters are looking for like they—they they go like these stowaways go with like some thief, and they're trying to find some character's brother or something is on an infant island. Um, but it's interesting because like Godzilla is resurrected. He fights this character Ibira, who's the sea monster. Godzilla the versus the giant crayfish. Yeah, he's fighting a giant crab monster. It made me think of Roger Corman's <laughs> Attack <laughs> of the Crab Monsters, which you know it's enjoyable to look at Ibira for a minute, and then he, she, it, or whatever it is, wears out its welcome. Ebra. It's, prob- it's probably Ebra. Yeah. Ebra returns in Godzilla Final Wars. Oh boy, does it still look like crap? I'll let you draw. 
Listen, I am really regretting the fact that I sold my copy of Godzilla Final Wars because we're gonna watch that Someday. together. I'm gonna. Am I we're gonna, going to enjoy it. Am I gonna friend. like not keep? Am I not gonna be able to keep track of certain characters? Though? No, this is not a problem. I think by now I probably know most of the characters, except yes. maybe like. I mean, I haven't seen like Destroyer. Destroyer. Can I call it Destroyer? No, you have to call it Destroyer. Um. I mean, there are things to like recommend about the movie. Like, it's not the strongest of the '60s movies. Um, like, I like the actors who play like these stowaways. Uh, I, like they're they're pretty good actors. And they, the thing about this movie though is that Godzilla doesn't show up for the until like 50 minutes in the movie, mm. almost 55 minutes. That's I think one of the disappointing parts of it. It's that even though okay, here's the story that actually involves nuclear weapons it's like this island of these like corporate whoever pirates who are making their own nuclear weapon facility on this island so i like that they brought back nuclear things into the godzilla world um and also that it didn't involve aliens it's you know like the villain is evil because he has an eye patch it's that kind of story um but uh but now we at least it's human beings it's not like Let's get some guy to put on like glasses and like a silver suit, and we could just say he's from space and Planet X. Yeah, an invasion of the Astro Monster, you know. Uh, <laughs> so I kind of like that aspect in that it's so like um, low stakes. Yeah, um, it's just like people trying to get out of a, a crappy situation. Yeah. Oh, and the one other thing is that Mothra is in it, but she's in it so little that that kind of pissed me off too, because like they. For a lot of the movie, you see the the people on the island doing their song and dance for Mothra, but she doesn't do anything until literally the last five minutes of the movie. And I'm like, you cannot have enough Mothra in your movie. True. So that was a little sad. Um. So yeah, those two Godzilla movies. Really fast, just to mention before we wrap this segment up, um, movies to definitely recommend they're playing right now, two new movies. This movie called Arrival. You heard of this? Yes. Amy Adams, Forrest Whitaker. Um, these aliens come to Earth, and it is very heady. It's extreme. It's it's more. It's it's a very very good movie. I'd almost say bordering on great, but it it's very intellectual. You have it's a it almost is like you got to have the smarts in your head. Well, it's like. The, the director of Blade Run, of the new Blade Runner that's being made now, which I know you're kind of like, <sighs> yeah. about. when I told you that, I could feel your sigh over the text message. Uh, Denny Villeneuve is his name. Although he did Sicario, too. Okay. So you could pull a trust I in enjoyed that. Sicario. I so. feel like he might be, it's interesting that he's doing Blade Runner, because he feels like maybe the successor to Ridley Scott in some ways, hmm. as far as doing these very brainy maybe a little bit cold movies and this is but this story it's an alien movie that is interesting for our times because it's about what it means to communicate it goes back a little bit to that close encounters of the third kind method about like instead of it being an alien movie as an excuse to just blow a lot of things up how here's a story about a character like amy adams's character in the movie who is assigned, okay, I want you to talk to these aliens. You're going to have to figure out their language. And, like, the way the aliens talk is, like, they shoot out. Like, they don't have mouths or heads. They're almost, like, just 
parts of like an octopus or something and they shoot out like little squid rings <laughs> and it's like they kind of have to create a new form of language but while they're doing it amy adams it causes her to almost start to experience a form of time travel but not like her like she's not going ahead in the future like her whole body but she can see into the future right and it's you really have to pay attention. You have to watch it, but it's very rewarding in that way. And the last movie I'd highly recommend, one of the best movies of the year, is something called Christine. This interests me because, in one part, movies that are not remakes, but they have the same name as a famous movie that came before. Like, we Christine, you'd probably think, oh, they're doing the John Carpenter, Stephen King movie again about the killing car right um but no this is a movie about this is not that story so don't don't get this confused with the carpenter movie i'm is... going to make a new movie myself it's about a battle in space it's called war stars <laughs> i have this wonderful uh i have this one oh man you're making me think now about how there is actually an italian terminator 2 not terminator no an italian terminator uh, that that totally rips it up. Um, I'm going to create a movie about aliens coming to Earth called Close Encounters of the Second Kind. Uh, well, Actually, Close Encounters of the Second Kind would be so dull because yeah. a Close Encounter of the Second Kind is just like you find evidence that an alien craft has been there. So it's like, hey, there's a burn ring on the on the ground. <laughs> That's like, here's our Close Encounters movie. For people who just like seeing archaeological digs. There's an alien candy wrapper that they left behind. <laughs> uh, but this movie is about a, a reporter in the 70s. Um, and is all I could all say is that it's very 70s. This woman works at like a small town. She, she Florida works in a bell-bottom jeans store. Something like that. Um, no, like this woman is very out of place and she's also kind of bipolar and very unable to connect with people but she's very very smart and like she's the kind of character that wants to do the kind of news that's human interest stories i want to do a story about the strawberry farmer and everybody and and her boss is like no if it bleeds it leads strawberries are indifferent to the humans who picks them however (laughs) Werner herzog uh guest no he's not in it (laughs) Um, but it, this is a great movie. Uh, it really drew me in. It's very, if you love seventies movies, this is like, they dusted off the script from the seventies and made it. It feels like it's that authentic. It's based on a true story. It's better. It's the kind of movie. that's better to not know much about it before you go in. So that's why I'm not saying too much. Just go in. If, if you like taxi driver type movies, this is for you. So, uh, with that, um, those are the movies I, I guess I've had to talk about. Good. Good. Uh, when well we, done. Yeah. Well done, Andrew. Thanks, Jack. You did some good work. <laughs> applause! Yeah. We, we know how to applaud each other. <laughs> that was for you, Jack. Yes. Um, well, that's for you too, Andrew. We make a good team. Nice. And And if you think we make a good team and want to applaud us some more... Uh, you can send us a message to wagesofcinema at gmail.com. Um, also, leave us messages on Facebook and uh, 
uh, and Twitter. We we got a nice comment about our Doctor Strange review. Oh, cool. Uh, thank you, person who left it. It didn't leave a detailed comment. It was just, hey, th- this is a great review. Um, actually, well, thanks. Yeah, thank you. Uh, actually, I can read the name of this person. What am I... I'm 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 acting all like I don't know who these people are. They, Barack they, Obama. I I'm really happy with the Wages of Cinema and their review of I Doctor say, Strange. I say I love this review of Doctor Strange, boy. Now that that is not Obama. I was well, trying. Yours wasn't Obama. Either. You were making him sound like Colonel Sanders or something like that. Um, no, uh, Maureen Moots, who left us a message on. November 9th saying the movie was outstanding. Yes. Um, thank you, Maureen. I agree with you. Um, <laughs> so, thank you. And like I said, if you leave us a comment, we'll read it on air. If you leave us a comment on iTunes, we'll read it on air. Um, and when we come back, Andrew is... Uh, Diving into the cinema immersion tank. And the question is, who will he survive and what will be left of him? <laughs>